All right, take your Bibles and let's make our way to Matthew, Matthew chapter 21. We're back to Matthew. If you're visiting with us today, this is the very first book in the second half or the second testament of your Bible. Um, so it's in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you find any of those, uh, you're, you're close. And uh, you can make your way back to Matthew chapter 21. And uh, we'll pick up our study this morning here. We've been several weeks now away from Matthew. And um, it's encouraging to come back. Uh, I trust that you're eager for the return as I am. I really enjoyed our time in the Psalms and have continued to feed upon the Psalms uh, because of our study time there at the end of the summer. But uh, grateful to return to our now three-year running study of Matthew. And um, just amazing to think that we've been this long here. And uh, I thought I was taking big sections and going to work, you know, really fast and and uh, get through this really quickly. And now we're in the third year of our study, our fourth year. This is our fourth year of studying Matthew. Uh, we just finished our third year of Matthew. So all that to say, we're going to go through chapter 21, 22, and 23 today. And uh, no, I'm teasing. Uh, just kidding. Um, we're going to study this first section of chapter 21. And, um, and I trust God will change us to be more like Christ and to be more what he's called us to be. Let's read verses 1 through 16 together. That's where we'll study this morning, and uh, you can follow along, and we'll get acclimated to our context after we read this and ask God to help us. Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse number 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. And others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant and they said to him, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. This is the word of God for our study this morning. Let's ask him to help us as we examine it together. Father, thank you for your word, for your revelation of yourself. This is a gift from you. The creator of the universe, you have revealed yourself, you have spoken to us, and you will speak to us now as we examine your word. 
We praise you and thank you for the benefits that accompany your word, the the power that is inherent in your word, the living and eternal word from you. So we pray now that you would help us as we study it. May the proclamation of your word be clear. May it be accurate. May it be understandable and meaningful. And may the reception of your word be humble and ready and submissive. May we all be affected and changed, molded and shaped by this portion of your word. We know that you desire to make us like Christ every time we encounter your word. And so we pray that this morning together we'd be shaped, molded. Where we are failing and flawed, there would be conviction, repentance and correction. Where we are seeing fruit and victory, there would be praise and worship. And may in all these things your name be lifted up. As we examine your word. We ask these things because of Christ and for Christ. And so we ask them in his name. Amen. Well, let's take just a few minutes to get our contextual bearings here in Matthew chapter 21. If you'll turn back, uh, let's go back to chapter 19 and let's be sure that we remember where we came from. We never want to take scripture and hold it outside of the rest of the Bible. Um, It matters what came before. It matters what comes after. It matters where it's situated and what's going on around the particular paragraph that we're studying. And that's the case this morning as well. So let's go back to chapter 19 and uh, find our way from chapter 19 at least up to 21, I trust. In chapter 19 and verse 13, we find a transition in, in Matthew's record of the gospel or the message of Jesus Christ. Verse number 13 says, Then children were brought to Jesus, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people. You remember this? But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And from that point forward, we find Jesus using a number of illustrations. The rich young man will come to him, talking about the kingdom, wanting entrance into the kingdom. We'll see the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And we'll notice that there's a, a paradigm, there is, a, there is a, a scenario that exists within the kingdom that is unique to the kingdom. The least ones are the greatest ones. And the greatest ones will be the least ones. There is a, a neutralizing factor for all who are in the kingdom, because all who are in the kingdom come by grace. So those that are least will be exalted. Those that are most will be debased. And within the kingdom, greatness will be established through the measuring stick of humility and service to the king. And there is no one greater within the kingdom than the king himself, who embodies the very message that he is teaching and that Matthew is recording in these chapters. In chapter 20, Jesus foretells and displays his kingdom greatness. You remember this in verse number 17, we find the third foretelling of Jesus' death and his resurrection. Um, Verses 17 through 19. In verse number 20, we have the very negative example of the, the kingdom greatness and the confusion that existed among the disciples. James and John employ their mom to come on their behalf and to ask Jesus for the right hand and the left hand in his kingdom. We can turn our nose up at that, but their confusion is a cultural confusion that we should be able to identify with because our culture hasn't changed. Prominence, power, status, wealth, position, 
are seen as the greatest of the great. Jesus says that those who would be great must share in his cup. That is the suffering and the humility that he would embody at the cross. And finally, we see a positive example in verses 29 down through verse 34. As we see the humble and desperate faith of the blind men. Great within the kingdom, looking to Christ in ultimate desperation and humility. That brings us to a real transition in Matthew. Uh, we, are, we are at a major break point in verse number 34 and verse number 1 of chapter 21. In between there, there's a, there's a clear distinction in where Matthew's going in this record. Right? So Matthew is writing this after the life of Christ, after the ascension of Christ for the church. And he's giving a faithful record to convince his readers, both then and now, that Jesus is the Messiah. There should, all questions should be set aside. He is the promised one. He is the fulfillment of every promise. So in verse number 20, or verse 1 of chapter 21, Matthew now turns his, his attention, and Jesus has been moving through Galilee, ministering, and Matthew's been establishing themes that point toward the messianic ministry of Jesus. Verse number 1 of chapter 21 we make a clear and definitive movement towards Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, you know the end is near. This section records what we have known, if we grew up in Sunday school, as the triumphal entry. Jesus enters Jerusalem with crowds singing and declaring His praises, exulting in His messianic role. But within a very, very short amount of time, crowds will gather and will scream for his crucifixion and will willingly trade this same Jesus for Barabbas. This is the context of chapter 21, and it carries us all the way through to the end of Matthew's record of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. So chapter, one, or chapter 21, verse 1, all the way through chapter 28, will be focused around the end of all things pertaining to Jesus' life and ministry, and in particular, the city of Jerusalem will come into special focus. Now, looking ahead um, from our study today, let me, notice, let me help you notice the context of what we're studying. Today, we find the authority of Jesus will be, will be declared to us, it will be presented to us in Matthew's record. The authority of Jesus will become a theme that will stick with us all the way through chapter 23 and verse, and verse 39. So through these chapters, Jesus' authority will either be being explained, being illustrated, or being challenged and answered. It is clearly Matthew's theme, and you know if you've been with us in the study of Matthew that he's not working strictly on a chronological history as much as he's using the history of Christ's life to present themes to us. Chapter 21, 22, and 23, he clearly is presenting the authority of the king, who is Jesus the Messiah. So, for this study, there is one big theme that we might put as an umbrella over this portion of Matthew's record. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. Therefore, this is critical, therefore, his authority is the delight of all kingdom citizens and the stumbling block of all who are outside. I'll say that again. Jesus is the king of the kingdom of heaven. And Matthew chapter 21 through 23 will make that 
painfully obvious. He is the king of the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, his authority is the delight. It's the joy of all his kingdom citizens. And it is the stumbling block of all who are outside of his kingdom. I think you'll see this unfold as we study this through the next several weeks. The authority of Jesus has always been and will always be a stumbling block for those who do not believe. Those who do not come to Jesus, relate to Jesus with humility that is born from seeing their sin and their spiritual bankruptcy. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. If there is not humility in the face of Jesus, His authority, His sovereignty will be an offense and it will be a stumbling block. There are many who are willing to relate to a Jesus of their own making. A Jesus who is not sovereign in His authority. Who does not dictate right from wrong. Who does not demand life changes in their circumstance. Oh, they're willing to relate to a Jesus that they can invent, create, manipulate to make as they want him to be but this jesus the one true revealed jesus from the pages of the word of god this is an authoritative king of a kingdom in which all who are his people exist under his reign so the rebellion against god's absolute authority really traces its way all the way back to the very first human being Adam was tempted through Eve from the serpent that he could be like God. He could have the knowledge of God. He could bear the same qualities that his creator had. He bought the lie. It was the lie that Satan desired most to be like the most high. So rebellion against this authority is nothing new. The deceiver has always presented this as an ultimate opportunity. It's still present in your life and in mine. Even as God's people, we are presented with a temptation to exist as if we are God. That is, we are authoritative. We dictate what is right and wrong. We establish the measuring stick for righteousness. We dictate what will take place in our existence. You remember this from James chapter 4. The arrogance and pride of saying, I'm going to go to this place at this time, stay this long, do this, and then be done. That's arrogant because it makes us the sovereign authority of the events of life. And we love that. Our flesh craves it because we were born in this original rebellion against God's absolute authority. So this rebellion towards God's authority is fundamental to our human condition. And therefore, it is no wonder that it's evident in those who reject Christ. The embodiment of God. The fullness of God dwelling among us. Emmanuel. So, when there is new life, when one is born again, when we have been given life by God, when we in life embrace by faith the work of Christ, there is a new creation that takes place. Remember this? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. There is a new creation that happens. A second work of creation. And it is a living heart. It is a new man created. And old things are passed away and new things are coming. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 3, we see this new created heart, this new creation, this new man described in this way. And by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep His commandments, 
So fundamental to the new creation is a new perspective on the absolute authority of Jesus Christ. So in chapter 21, 22 and 23, and today in our study, we will face head on the authority, the kingly authority of Jesus over his kingdom. And we will delight in it if, in fact, we are his kingdom citizens. And we will stumble over it if we have set our course against Christ and against his authority. John goes on to say, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he, that is Jesus, walked. So consider this morning with me from this narrative, verses 1 through 16, five observations. There are five observations. These are not difficult. We're going to look at this text from a detail standpoint. We're going to see the events that are taking place, observe what's happening. And from that observation, I trust five truths will come to the surface about the authority or regarding the authority of Jesus in the triumphal entry. Jesus is the king of the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, he is... His authority is the delight of all kingdom citizens, and it is the stumbling block of all who are outside of his kingdom. All right, so Jesus' kingly authority, or King Jesus' authority, number one, demands obedience by his followers. Observation number one, the authority of Jesus demands obedience by his followers. We can read these verses rather quickly and miss what is taking place in verses one through six. What's happening in verses 1 through 6 is Jesus giving very detailed instructions to two of his disciples. We don't know who they are. None of the Gospels record the names of the two disciples who were chosen for this task. Jesus is coming from Bethpage toward Jerusalem. Bethpage is not in your Bible maps. You probably know that since you spend so much time there studying and looking at the maps. Right? It's not there. Can't find it. But you can probably find the Mount of Olives, depending on how good your maps are in the back of your Bible. And if you find the Mount of Olives on the southeast corner of it, there's a little village. It's the best guess that was Bethpage near Bethany heading into Jerusalem. They leave Bethpage. Jesus says, go into the village that's in front of you and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them here to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. Okay, notice the commands that are connected here that Jesus assumes will be obeyed by his followers. Go, untie, bring to me. And if you're confronted, say these words. It's fascinating stuff. The disciples are sent into this town. They're told to go to an unidentified person who owns both a donkey and its baby donkey. And just take them. Take them and bring them to Jesus. And if the person objects, which you would think if they saw it happening, they would object. (laughs) I don't know how valuable donkeys were, but come on. They had to be valuable enough to say, what are you doing with my donkeys? So they're, they're, they're pack animals, they're, they're the low end of transportation, but they are valuable transportation, no less. And if they're confronted, 
They're simply to respond, the Lord, the master needs these donkeys. And don't worry, when you say it, they'll say, okay, take them. And the disciples go and do exactly what Jesus has told them to do. They go and bring the donkeys. They fulfill Old Testament prophecy. Matthew hasn't brought us back to Old Testament prophecy in this way. It it brings us back to, you remember in Matthew chapter 2, there's that whole description of Jesus as the one who fulfills what was written. This is messianic confirmation in the middle of this narrative that these donkeys being brought and Jesus riding a donkey into Jerusalem is in direct fulfillment of what the prophet has said in Zechariah 9.9. These disciples obey Jesus implicitly. He is clearly operating with his authority over them and the use of Lord in his description of a rebuttal confirms that. It is the master who needs them. So the disciples are given something of an odd assignment. And they obey it fully. And it reminds us, as we observe this narrative, that Jesus' authority, his kingly authority, demands obedience by his father. There's nothing out of the ordinary for Jesus to say, go, untie, bring, say. This is fitting for him. He's the king. This is the way he operates in relationship to those that follow him. Those that are his kingdom citizens. These two disciples help us see that reality. The disciples went and did as Jesus, their Lord, had directed them. This isn't radical Christianity. This is not radical. This is not wild. This didn't catch you by surprise. You didn't find yourself gasping as you saw that they went and did as he had directed them. No, it's Jesus. He's the king. They're his kingdom citizens. They're his 12 disciples. And he sends two of them and they obey. That's Christianity. This is what the kingdom is. We obey the direction of the king. His authority demands our obedience. And we delight in giving him our obedience. This is the mark of all who love Jesus. You remember John said in chapter 14 and verse 15 of his gospel account. He records Jesus saying, if you love me, keep my commandments, do what I say, obey my directions. And that that sounds so elementary, doesn't it? It sounds so basic as if we could all just nod our heads and be like, yeah, we just obey Jesus. Really? That's a that's a heavy duty responsibility, because what Jesus calls us to is an abandonment of our own agenda. What Jesus calls us to is an abandonment of everything we consider valuable. What our culture and our society says is valuable to live in a totally different priority list, to live with totally different agendas, to exist for the extension of his kingdom through the proclamation of the good news of his life, death, resurrection and return. To walk in a manner that's worthy of our calling. These are weighty matters, but the authority of Jesus, his kingly authority demands such obedience in the minuscule or the minute and in the grandest of the commands that we are given in his word. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. And those who are his kingdom citizens delight in that authority. Those who are not reject it and hate that authority. It is a stumbling block to them. Second observation that comes from 
this narrative account. The kingly authority of Jesus not only demands obedience by his followers, but secondly, it incites worship from his followers. It incites worship from his followers. Notice what takes place on the road. With whatever information they have, these individuals respond appropriately. Albeit for many, it is temporary. They appropriately respond to the authority of Jesus. These donkeys are brought to Jesus. Small detail, verse number 7. Just so we're clear. um, The disciples put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Just to get a visual picture here. He's only sitting on one donkey, okay? Um, It's not them as in the two donkeys. Uh, This isn't like a road show. And uh, he's riding on two donkeys at one time. He's riding on two cloaks at one time. Two cloaks on one donkey, Jesus on the donkey. So um, the pictures from the flannel graph and all of that, they were right. It is just one donkey. He's not straddling two or standing on two or anything like that, okay? He's riding on these donkeys, and notice what happens with the crowd. John chapter 12, verse 12 says that people came out of Jerusalem, and people were with him from Galilee. So that describes for us what we're seeing in verse number 8. Most of the crowd, not all, but most of the crowd spread their cloaks in the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him, so that's the two different groups, out of Jerusalem toward him, so they're in front of him, following with him from Galilee into Bethpage, from Bethpage into Jerusalem. We have a crowd behind him and in front of him. And notice what they are shouting. They are screaming at the top of their lungs. Verse 9 says, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This is an appropriate response to the authority of Jesus as king. It incites worship in his followers. Hosanna is a transliteration of a Hebrew word that simply means save. It was used mostly in the Old Testament to cry out for salvation, for help, help us, save us. But it it morphed into being a, a blessing or a declaration. So blessing, salvation to the son of David. People scream Hosanna to the son of David. And that is no insignificant title. The son of David is clearly looking back to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and the Davidic covenant where God promised David that there would be an eternal throne of David that would forever rule and bless his people. And Jesus is the son, capital S, of David. He is the Messiah and they are boldly declaring it. They are shouting it in a hostile environment, in the city of Jerusalem, crowds of people are screaming blessings to the Messiah. Yeshua, the promised one. The son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a direct quote in verse number 9. We see them using Hosanna. We find that in Psalm 118 and continues... In the second half of their shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a direct quote from Psalm 118, verse 26, if you're interested. The people who have gathered behind Jesus and in front of Jesus are aware and are declaring in worship his rightful identity as the king of the kingdom. They throw themselves before him. They throw their coats on the road 
in homage. They throw down branches so that his majestic, kingly feet and the feet of the donkey carrying the king don't have to step upon the dirt, but instead can step upon their jackets and these branches. The kingly authority of Jesus incites worship from his followers. Notice how this portion ends in verses 10 and 11. Having declared Hosanna in the highest, that is from heaven, they entered Jerusalem. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? Now, it's interesting that we read that because surely at this point, Jerusalem knows who this is. I mean, surely they know what the procession is all about. Jesus has arrived from Galilee, from the Mount of Olives, and they heard he was coming and he's here. I don't think they're asking the question in a very simplistic informational sense. Who is this as in, oh, it's Jesus. But rather, what's all the commotion for? Why is he being treated in such fashion? What is this? Who is this? Who is he to get this kind of response from people within the city of Jerusalem? And the answer comes back. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Those details are important. They consider him to be the prophet. Matthew doesn't condemn them for that. He doesn't record Jesus rebuking them for that. This is a prophetic nature that Jesus did hold. They viewed him in light of Old Testament prophecy and as a key figure in God's eschatological work, his end time work for the nation of Israel. And clearly they had just exalted him as the son of David. So this title of prophet is not a a shortcutting of Jesus rather a a distinct definition of his ministry. This is the prophet. This is the teacher. This is the the one from God. And then this final description from Nazareth of Galilee. Now that's probably there because it's unbelievable to these people that anything good would come out of Nazareth. This is the prophet Jesus. You've heard about this guy. He's healing everyone. He's doing unbelievable works. He answers the Pharisees. He, he, He teaches the scriptures with authority and power. And he's from Nazareth. From Galilee. That's that's the the tone of this description. You remember that um, Philip and Nathanael had a little discussion. Philip came. This was in John chapter 14, verse 15. Philip comes. We found him. We have found the Messiah. It's Jesus from Nazareth. And Nathanael's going, wait a second. Nazareth? And he says, does anything good come out of Nazareth? I don't know where that place is here. That's good. Because I'd probably foolishly use it. There's got to be some place where in our society, in our valley, we would say, does anything good come out of there? This is the idea that's connected to Nazareth. It's a low-level fishing community. It is a bottom-rung educational community. And this is where the promised one, the great prophet of heaven, the king of the kingdom, has come from. So, Jesus' kingly authority both demands the obedience of his followers and it incites the worship of his followers. Those who rightly perceive the authority of Jesus respond in extravagant and reckless worship of the Messiah. So let's just pause and let's ask ourselves a personal question. Am I a reckless and extravagant worshiper of Jesus? Or have I become very used to the one who came from Nazareth of Galilee? 
I mean, would we be in the group that was standing kind of outside of the group and saying, like, you guys really need to be balanced in this thing. You need to calm down a little bit. Let's not get carried away. I bought that coat for you for Christmas. Don't you dare throw that thing down on the ground. You're not giving that away to somebody for Jesus' sake. I mean, let's just cool it here. Or are we extravagant and reckless and loud and bold and courageous to say, Hosanna, the son of David has come. He's here. He's in our presence. Because as his followers, his authority, his kingly reign means everything to us. It incites in us all of our worship. We will will worship him in all of his kingly majesty for eternity. So Jesus' authority demands our obedience. It also incites our worship. Thirdly, Jesus' kingly authority provokes judgment upon false religion. So Jesus' authority comes out of him in judgment upon false religion. It provokes judgment upon false worship or religion. Verses number 12 and 13. And Jesus entered the temple. This is in Jerusalem. And drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. It's the second time he's done this. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house should be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now, what's going on here? Jesus enters the temple and in all of his kingly authority and the exercise of his authority, he flips over tables. He runs out the merchants. He literally runs them out. They are no longer doing business because Jesus arrived at the temple. This is swift, it's violent, it's decisive. He's the authority, he's the king. This is his temple, and he will not allow this activity to go on in his temple. What is it? Well, there was a major supply and demand connected with the temple. If you've read your Old Testament, you know that. You might find it interesting that these are pigeon salesmen. Probably a bunch of you sell a lot of things, but I doubt any of you sell pigeons. Why are they selling pigeons at the temple? Because the pigeons represented the low-level sacrifice that could be offered. Pigeons were critical to the Israelite to provide sacrifices within the temple. The money changers, what's going on there? Well, the, 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 the currency of the day would be transferred over to temple currency. And in doing that money exchange, there would be a temple tax which was required of the Israelites that would be taken out of that. So the ratio was not one for one in the money changing world. Now on the surface, that seems like it's a reasonable asset to these people. They come, they only have their Roman currency, and they give it to this person who exchanges it, takes out their tax form without telling them because they can do that gives them their temple wage so that they can take their temple currency and go buy whatever they needed to buy to make their sacrifice. But obviously, this has become corrupted. So now there is skimming that's going on in these money changers. And like it has always happened, those who exchange the money have the freedom and the power to decide just how much the ratio is. So the Roman currency had fallen on hard times, much like the American dollar in a lot of European countries. There was not a good exchange rate. And the exchange rate that was happening provoked the judgment of Jesus in all of his kingly authority. He judges them on the spot. He throws them out because they are stealing from the people. Overpriced pigeons. Bad ratios of currency transitions, transfers. And the authority of Jesus 
is provoked to judgment. Jesus says it is written and he compiles Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah 7, 11. And he condemns these people for taking the temple, which was to be a place of worship and devotion and relationship to God and made it into a mall where they were able to make money and rob the people of God who were there to worship. Jesus hates false religion. He despises false worship. He has no patience with those who corrupt worship and make it an opportunity for material gain. Jesus is never, never impressed with mere external form in worship without genuine heart connection to what's happening. He hates false religion and his authority provokes him to judge it right here on the spot as he arrives in his triumphal entry to Jerusalem. He will continue to judge false religion. Ultimately, he will be the judge that ends false religion. That banishes all who embrace it and who lead in it to eternal judgment apart from his presence and an eternal torment. Fourthly, Jesus' kingly authority demands obedience on the part of his followers. It incites worship and it provokes judgment from him toward false worship. Fourthly, Jesus' kingly authority fuels compassion for the desperately needy. Now we see what has become so familiar to us in verse number 14. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Matthew's so understated. There's no description of this. There's no description of the joy that accompanied this, of these people running around in circles and screaming out with the people in the temple, Hosanna, the son of David. Hosanna in the highest. Just understated. Lame, blind, Jesus healed, done. How can he operate in such a fashion? On what authority does he bring himself to heal all forms of diseases? These are two big categories. You remember John the Baptist's followers in chapter 11? They came to Jesus. Are you really the one? John wants to know because he's in prison. He's getting a little tired and a little impatient. Are you really the Messiah? And when are you going to get this thing going? Jesus says, go tell John what you've heard. The lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear. These miraculous works accompanying the messianic ministry of Jesus were part and parcel to his kingly authority. They were displays of his power. They were opportunities for all to see the sovereign power with which he operated in his healing ministry. It fueled his compassion for those who came to him desperately in need. Matthew has no fanfare connected to this account. But the Messiah is limitless in his compassion and his care. And it's his authority over all creation that fuels him in his healing ministry. No one else is like King Jesus. Listen, brothers and sisters, when we think of king, just because of where we live, we don't have real favorable views of kings, right? We wanted to do away with this whole king and queen nonsense, this monarch thing. We're we're not in favor of that. Uh, we'd prefer to have a government that's by the people for the people in theory, right? So that's, that's, we we're not, we're not favorable to kings. And for good reason, because kings in the worldly sense of, of kingship are most often corrupted by sin. So with that much absolute power granted to them over a nation, they are 
almost instantaneously corrupted by that power. Your Savior is no such king. And as citizens within His kingdom, we are under the compassionate, almighty, sovereign one of heaven. He is utterly righteous. He is without sin. He is not corrupted. His power is never tainted. It's never for His own selfish purposes. It's for the benefit of His people, for the glory of His Father. He is always righteous and in all ways righteous. His kingly authority only fuels, only gives, gives way to His compassion. His compassion is endless for all who come in desperate belief. He heals. He forgives sins. Blind see, lame walk. Dead hearts are made alive. The kingly authority of Jesus fuels compassion for the desperately needy. Finally, the fifth observation from this narrative account. Jesus is the king of the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, his authority is the delight of all kingdom citizens and the stumbling block of all who are outside of his kingdom. Number five, Jesus' kingly authority generates hatred from his enemies. I was struck by two words in verse number 15. But when the chief priest and the scribe saw, the next two words struck me as profound. The wonderful things that he did. I don't know if you consider this enough. I don't know if we consider this enough. But those who saw Jesus at work saw wonderful things. And they never denied that wonderful things were happening. These chief priests, these are the highest level of religious leaders within the people of God, the nation of Israel. And the scribes who would write and copy the law of God saw the wonderful things that he did. And they heard the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Messiah, the son of David. And they were indignant. They hated him for it. They crucified him for it. The authority of Jesus always generates hatred from those who are opposed to him. As he is revealed to us. These scribes and Pharisees said to him, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read the Bible? It says out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. There's a lot going on here, but let's let's briefly look at the details The wonderful things that these Pharisees, these chief priests rather, and the scribes saw Jesus doing in this moment in his display of compassion with kingly authority. These wonderful things remind us that the enemies of Jesus were not enemies because they were ignorant. Don't ever forget, brothers and sisters, that the human condition is not one that needs education. Education does not fix the problem that is is put on display in the chief priests and the scribes. Oh, they knew about Jesus. They saw with their own eyes people who were blind, now seeing. People who were lame and crippled with perfect limbs. They saw it. They knew it. It was not an information deficit. It was not that Jesus needed to sit down with them and be like, now listen, i got to tell you some things, and then you won't, you won't respond this way. Oh, they heard him. They knew the truth. Their condition was much more serious They needed a new heart. They were bent in will against him. They were his enemies. 
They rejected him. They were in disbelief. And with the wicked heart with which they were born, there was no potential apart from the grace of God of them responding in any other way. Nor has there ever been, apart from the grace of God, any other response to Jesus. His authority generates hatred from all who are blinded as his enemies. They were indignant. Their blind pride overflowed. And they self-righteously asked Jesus, do you hear what these kids are saying about you? Do you realize they're calling you the Messiah? Jesus, at times, I'm encouraged by his sarcasm. And this is one of those places. David and I, Renee and Kathy, all had a professor in college that is very special to us because he taught us to love the Word of God and to handle it very carefully. His name was Greg Mazak, And I remember he would say, if you're going to say this, and he'd come up with some statement, he'd say, why don't you get a T-shirt, just a white T-shirt, get a marker, and write on it, I don't read my Bible. So if you're going to say that, just go ahead and get your T-shirt out. Am I right? This is what he would say. I don't read my Bible. And, you know, we, that, that definitely fueled us. We liked that. It probably didn't have all the best effects on us. Um, but it did remind us of the sufficiency and the authority of Scripture. Jesus says the same thing to these chief priests and scribes. Listen, these are the people that know the Word of God more than anybody knows the Word of God. These are the guys that copy down the Word of God word for word for their life. That's what they do. And Jesus responds to them. Haven't you read your Bible? I mean, the insult here is is big. And the irony is thick. It's just dripping with sarcasm. Have you never read that out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you prepared praise? Don't you know that this is what the Old Testament said would happen? You've seen the wonderful things. You've watched the power on display. You know of the authority. They had read these words they did know what the word said in the old testament psalm number eight verse number two and his authority against their blind pride generated hatred it will always generate hatred by the opponents of christ the hatred here is natural it's offensive To have a sovereign. Unless we've come to the realization. That we are desperately in need. Of a substitute. And if we are aware of our desperate need for a substitute. One who could make us right with our creator. One who could set everything in order. So that we could experience fellowship and eternal. Eternal relationship with God. And if in coming to that realization, our eyes have been turned to Jesus Christ, who comes from heaven, God of very gods, eternal second person of the Trinity, and takes on human flesh, dies in the place of sinners, lives in perfect obedience, and then dies at the cross, bearing the wrath of God for sin, for all who would believe. And then on the third day is raised to everlasting life. If we've come to the realization of who we are, and we've come to the realization of who He is, then we Delight in His sovereign authority. Who else would we rather follow but King Jesus? But for all who still hold to their own righteousness, who have bound themselves in their own agenda and pride, who have been blinded 
to the cross and the life and the resurrection of Christ. There is only hatred. So if you have a Jesus that you're very happy to relate to. Oh yeah, I know Jesus. Yeah. And he doesn't demand anything of you. And he doesn't incite worship from you. And he's pretty cool with anything. He never, he's never provoked to judgment toward false teaching and false religion. He's not marked by an authoritative compassion over the universe and the power to affect even the natural laws of the universe. You might have a Jesus, but he's not this one. And any other Jesus will lead you to another gospel. And the Apostle Paul said that any other gospel will lead you to anathema, judgment. You'll be cursed by God for your own interpretation of Jesus. This is the king of the kingdom. Bow before him, delight in his authority, or face his wrath in the judgment. So it's appropriate to ask, have you bowed before the sovereign authority of heaven? The one who's revealed here entering Jerusalem, who is to humble himself briefly. He will very shortly, he will humble himself at the cross. He will bear the wrath of his father. He will suffer. For our sins. Have you bowed before this one? Do you know him? Because to know him is to obey him and to live in joy under his authority. If you have Christian. Christ follower. Obeyer of Jesus. Citizen of the kingdom of heaven. In which he is the king. How do we reflect. Our awareness of. And submission to his authority. So how do we see that. How would it be known. That you and I. Joyfully submit. Under the sovereign authority. Of the king. Of kings and Lord of every other Lord. So is he king in your home? Like is it obvious that Jesus reigns in your home? Is it obvious that he is the sovereign authority of your relationships? Your priorities? Your agendas? How about your work ambitions? How about your business decisions? How about the words that come from your mouth? Is he sovereign over your plans and goals for the future? Is he sovereign over the passions of your heart that drive you forward? Is King Jesus obvious in our lives as his people? As king. He purchased our lives with his blood. Which makes our lives the domain of his reign. He's got every right to them. And we have every reason to submit them. It's by His grace that we do battle with our flesh. That we resubmit and resubmit and resubmit on a daily, sometimes moment-to-moment basis. But it is critical that we acknowledge and embrace and delight in the kingly authority of Jesus. It demands our obedience. It incites our worship. It provokes, it fuels His judgment of false religion. It is the the very substance of his compassion as he pours out in his mighty power. And ultimately, 
it is the centerpiece of the hatred of all of his enemies. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. Therefore, his authority is the delight of all of his citizens, and it's the stumbling block of all who are not his citizens. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this record of this entry into Jerusalem. We know the end of the story. We know about this crowd. We know about these declarations turning to vicious and hateful declarations. But we're reminded here, as we see clearly presented through the faithful record of Matthew, that Jesus is the King. His authority is unquestioned and unstoppable. And we desire to submit our lives freshly to it. For those that are here who have never bowed their knee, they have invented their own Jesus, or they have outright rejected Jesus completely. Father, open their eyes to the greatness of the one true Savior for sinners. The only name under heaven through which men are saved. May they see His perfect obedience to Your law and His death at the cross as substitution for them. May they embrace and believe and have confidence in His victorious resurrection three days later, conquering death and sin. May they bow their heart in faith, looking and believing what they cannot see. Father, this is your work. Salvation belongs to you. So we ask that you would accomplish it even this morning. And for those of us who are the recipients of your grace, may we be reminded and may we be informed in our, in our obedience and in our worship and in our modeling and following after Christ, walking as He walked, may His authority and His kingly reign be ever-present in all of the facets of our life. So we might bring You glory in ultimate ways as You have planned for us. We want to do that, and we desire to do that in the power of Your Holy Spirit who is with us. So we pray that He would convict, He would change, shape, and mold us. May we be not just hearers, but doers of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. The King of heaven. Amen.